1: Welcome to Dig the History Podcast. <music>
0: Lorraine and Ed Warren spent over 60 years investigating paranormal activity. Lorraine, a quote-unquote validated and proven clairvoyant, and Ed, a self-trained demonologist, started working on cases of hauntings and demonic infestations shortly after they married. By the time Ed passed away in 2006, they'd investigated thousands of alleged hauntings and spirit presences, mostly in the United States, but they were largely unknown until they worked on the alleged Amityville haunting in 1976. On November 13, 1974, Ronald DeFeo Jr. murdered his parents and four siblings while all slept in their home at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New Jersey. DeFeo was charged and convicted with their murders a little over a year later George and Kathy Lutz bought the house and moved in with their children they were aware of the murders the case was highly publicized and it was a fairly small town I mean it'd be hard to move into a small town where six people had been murdered in a house and not know about it Mm -hmm. that's what always gets me with American Horror Story when they're talking about like the murder house I'm like People, <laughs> you know the history of this house. Anyway, right, right. Um, but, you know, th- this history drove the price of the house down and it made it more affordable to the Lutzes. It was a large house on the water with a boathouse and a swimming pool. A month later, they fled 112 Ocean Avenue with their children. In the lead up to their uh, decision to abandon the house, they reported experiencing bizarre, terrifying phenomena. Psychic paralysis, temperature fluctuations, levitations of people and objects, unsettling spirit presences that took on the shape of talking pigs, cloven hoof prints from the house to the boat dock, black substances dripping out of and hardening in the keyholes, doors slamming all throughout the house like gunshots, even the front door being ripped off of its hinges." A New York TV station called on the Warrens to investigate the Lutz's claims about the house being haunted. What Ed and Lorraine found supported the Lutz's story. The house was truly abandoned a fully stocked fridge, clothes in the drawers and closets, all the family keepsakes and photo albums left behind. The Lutzes had just bought a speedboat, which they never even got the chance to use, and George Lutz left his three rebuilt motorcycles in the garage. They refused to return. George said in all, between the money they lost in trying to dump the house, all their belongings and legal fees, they lost at least $100,000. They picked up and moved clear across the country to escape the association with Amityville, their haunted house and the horror franchise that monetized their misfortune. In their investigations, Ed and Lorraine didn't definitively claim that a demon terrorized the Lutzes or even made Ron DeFeo Jr. kill his family. Instead, as recorded in the book Ghost Tracks, Ed Warren asserts that when people do bad things or invite bad things into their homes with Ouija boards or occult objects or by playfully summoning demons on Halloween night, They invite evil in, and it might just heed the call. Because the Amityville case
1: generated a best-selling book in 1977 and then a film adaptation in 79, the Warrens were launched into national recognition. Though they'd established a name for themselves from the late 1960s on within the paranormal investigative circles, the highly public nature of 112 Ocean Ave shifted that considerably. From 1977 to today, their work has been the subject of at least 12 books. While the Amityville Film Trilogy um, and the 2005 remake and the 2009 A Haunting in Connecticut are all loosely based on worn cases, in the last decade, their legacy and work has been immortalized in the Conjuring Universe horror franchise, with Ed portrayed by Patrick Wilson and Lorraine played by Vera Farmiga. Each film is supposed to be based on the true case files of the Warrens. But when it comes to supernatural phenomena, it can be hard for the average layperson to wrap their head around truth and lie, reality and fantasy, fact and fiction. As historians, truth and reality are particularly loaded concepts. When reconstructing the past, truth is often just perspective. My recollection of an event will be different from Sarah's and vice versa. So part of the job is to collect as many of those truths together as we can and provide the bigger picture, which is always harder than it sounds. When it comes to the work of Ed and Lorraine Warren, and for our purposes today, it doesn't matter so much whether their investigations and the evidence of paranormal activity were real or hoax. They acted on belief and both the actions and the beliefs can tell us much about them, the people they endeavored to help and the ongoing war between good and evil threaded in a Roman Catholic worldview. So today we're talking about the Warrens, paragons of paranormal investigations, and their place in the longer history of Roman Catholic demonology and the fight against the devil. I'm Averill Earls. And I'm Sarah Hanley-Cousins. And we are your historians for this episode of DIG. DIG. <laughs>
0: We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters. We are so honored to have listeners all over the world, a global community that is reflected in our incredible auger and Excavator-level patrons. Jesse in Florida, Lauren and Edward in Ohio, Denise in Albany, Maddie in Texas, Maggie in Oregon, Danielle in Idaho, Lisa in British Columbia, Agnes in Iceland which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Iris in Washington, Maria in Germany, and Colin, Susan, and Peggy right here with us in Buffalo. Thank you from the very bottom of our historian hearts. Listeners, if you're not yet a patron of the show, it's easy. You can check us out at patreon.com slash to learn more.
1: By the 1970s, Ed and Lorraine had a well-packaged personal narrative about their path to paranormal investigation. Lorraine knew she was different from other people when she explained to the religious sisters who ran her private Catholic school that she could see people's auras, and they were horrified. Ed told interviewers and biographies that he lived in a haunted house from ages 5 to 12. He and his twin sisters saw gray women in their closets and heard footsteps when they were home alone. Ed described several occasions as a boy and young man in which he felt the presence of God, a good spirit in the form of his mother comforting him and his sister, a divine intervention when he was about to drown in the North Sea. When Ed described his path to demonology to Cheryl Wicks, who co-authored Ghost Tracks with Ed and Lorraine, he said that he did not choose to become a demonologist, he was born to be one. He claimed that one needed to be tough in his childhood experiences, his alcoholic mother and gruff police officer father, the tough neighborhood he grew up in, and the defining years made him into the kind of person who had what it took to fight evil on the
0: front lines. In all the biographical accounts of Ed and Lorraine, there's some version of their meet cute origin story. As 16-year-olds, they met at the movie theater where Ed worked in Bridgeport, Connecticut. According to Wicks, during an air raid, the movie theater was evacuated and Ed offered to, quote, take Lorraine and her friends to a place called Riches, where the floor and tabletops were marble. Lorraine's friends ordered five cent Cokes, but Lorraine ordered an ice cream soda. Ed called her a gold digger. um, And that was apparently charming. <laughs> they were engaged within a year before Ed enlisted in the Navy to go fight in the Second World War. He barely survived after his merchant marine ship came under attack. He and another soldier were dragged out of the North Sea by a PT boat. When Ed was on medical leave, Lorraine rushed to be with him. They got married, and while he was back on duty at war, their daughter, Judy, was born. Side note, she was,
1: Lorraine, was at the time recovering from having her appendix removed, and he was only just leaving after being hospitalized. So, though I'm sure the sex was passionate... It probably had to be somewhat cautious, too, (laughs) which is, you know, just the kind of thing that I think about as I read these things. Obviously, neither the demure lady nor tough guy Ed um, mentioned those details in their interviews, which I think is a real shame.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. It reminds me of in in the Outlander books, they are constantly having sex after like almost dying of like some terrible disease or like a terrible snake bite or something. And I'm like. How can you physically perform and why do you want to? (laughs) I mean, maybe that's just me, but okay. When the war ended, the Warrens settled in their hometown of Monroe, Connecticut. He started painting, she taught art classes, and they indulged their interest in the paranormal by driving around New England and visiting allegedly haunted houses. Sometimes Lorraine would knock on a door and ask if the family would allow them in, and she would use her clairvoyance to suss out what spirits were living in the house and what they wanted from the people living there. Sometimes Ed would sketch or paint an alleged haunted house, then show the painting to the owners. In exchange for the art, many homeowners allowed the Warrens to investigate their houses. They collected stories of paranormal
1: experiences, and in 1952, they figured out how to monetize their work. They founded the New England Institute for Psychic Research, modeled on the American and United Kingdom societies for psychical research, which were founded in the 19th century and published quarterly journals of parapsychological research. The Warrens published their own journal, though I have no idea what was in those journals because I can't find a permanent digital archive of them anywhere, and presumably they sold copies to interested readers. They started giving lectures and interviews, for a fee of course, on demonology and their investigative work and experiences. They made book deals and movie deals. They ran a small occult museum out of their home in Monroe. Though they insisted that they asked for nothing more than expenses for travel from the people that they helped, they were able to make a living educating others on demons, ghosts, and all manner of paranormal activity.
0: Listener, I really want you to know that the word educating is in quotes. Educating others. <laughs> what is demonology? It's, of course, the study of demons. Like criminologists study crime and the social and psychological and structural factors that drive people to commit crimes, demonologists study the manifestations of evil on Earth, with a focus on the demonic entities that seek to possess the weak-spirited and drive them to do harm to others and or to themselves. Since starting research for this episode, I enrolled in a class on demonology.
1: In several places (laughs) in the course... (laughs) (laughs) listen it was valuable research (laughs) in several places in this course including at the beginning of the unit on how to summon a demon the folks at paranormal academy issue a warning quote at no point do we ever recommend summoning a demon it is very dangerous (laughs) you can't you can't laugh this is serious
0: oh my god It
1: is very dangerous to use any of the advice contained in this section to summon evil. This section is for information purposes only and the paranormal academy will not be held responsible should you use the information in a negative way. The reason behind this section is to help you understand the activities that could be used to summon a demon. It will help you when carrying out a paranormal investigation as you can ask the property owners if they have carried out any of the following activities which may have attracted a negative entity to the property. It's absolutely amazing. End quote. It reminds me of, you know, how in like the old timey birth control pills yes, and tincture exactly. ads, they're like, do not use this. It will induce an abortion. Yeah, definitely do
0: not do this thing that we're going to give you specific details about how to do. <laughs> Ed and Lorraine were firm with everyone they lectured, taught, or helped. People who dabble in evil, whether knowingly or unknowingly, invite evil into their homes and selves. They believe that the non-believers were the most susceptible to the influence of the demonic because non-believers don't know how to arm themselves with the prayers and protections of Jesus. Ouija boards, witchcraft, occult objects, anything and everything that might open a door for spirits to pass through was, to Ed and Lorraine, an invitation to evil. The Warrens made it their life's work to educate people on these dangers and to help those for whom the warnings came too late. From the mid-1940s right up until Ed's death, the the Warrens
1: lectured on college campuses, carrying with them an impressive array of paranormal evidence, infrared photos of haunted spaces, recordings of possessed individuals' voices, and all kinds of physical evidence intended to convince audiences of their experiences. They told stories of the things they'd experienced or the stories that others had relayed to them about their own experiences. Later in life, they held classes for people, young and old, interested in obtaining a level of comprehension about the preternatural and supernatural world. They assembled a network of reliable colleagues to take on the ever-increasing demand for paranormal investigation in the 1980s and 90s and managed to balance answering the calls of those in need with the adventures in ghost hunting that had long been the spark in their relationship.
0: In May 2000, Ed and Lorraine Warren took a group of paranormal investigators, ranging in ages from 20 to 60, including students, scientists, and writers, to Scotland to see the sites and to check out the haunted castles and estates. According to Ed, the group was invited to investigate the alleged haunting of a hotel in the northern Scottish Highlands. The hotel had once been a hunter's lodge during the Victorian era and was converted into a hotel after World War I, probably a casualty of the landed nobility succumbing to debts and poverty. At the hotel, they were met by two staff members who'd come into contact with ghostly presences while working. After eating and giving an interview to an American magazine on site to interview the Warrens about their work, Ed and Lorraine split their research group up. Lorraine took some to walk through the hotel to see what she could feel of the place. Others stayed with Ed while he took up interviewing the hotel staff on site who claimed to have experienced unusual things at night during the psychic hours, which was Ed's term, between 9 p.m. and 6 a.m. Michael,
1: a bartender, and all these names are changed for the anonymity of the sources, um, described a lonely winter night when it was just him and Raymond, a chef, working. Michael had gone around to lock up the building. He said, quote, This particular night, I went up to the first floor, and imagine this in a Scottish accent, which I'm not going to try to do because that would be embarrassing (laughs) for all of us. Um, I went up to the first floor, was just starting to walk along the corridor, when I came to some swing doors, the kind you push to go through. I was just about to press the doors to go through and looked through their glass windows when I saw the next set of doors begin to swing by themselves. You know, they went back and forth, just flapping as if someone had just run through them. But there was no one there. I just turned around and kind of ran back. I came back down to the bar. There was a couple of local guys still there. I I just couldn't speak or anything. And they were like, what's wrong with you? What happened? Everybody said I looked white and like I'd seen a ghost. I said, something really strange just happened. And they said, well, what did you see? I didn't actually see anything. It was just the doors flapping by themselves. They were saying things like, when I pushed the doors, I must have caused a draft for the others to flap. So we all went back together. We tried every feasible way to get the door to do the same thing, but we couldn't. You have to push them. It was literally like someone had pushed them and ran through
0: with the doors flapping after they had gone through. The chef, Raymond, described seeing a gray face shape in a reflection on the glass, but that it didn't seem like it could be his own reflection and that it gave him the heebie jeebies. Lorraine returned with her group and blurted that she felt a man was killed in an unused guest room upstairs. She just felt this, apparently. Her psychic impression was that the murder had happened in the 1920s. Ed had gleaned from the interviews that the spirit was likely disturbed when the hotel was undergoing some renovations to the place where the spirit had died. The Warrens gathered their group of researchers, the hotel staff, and families, and went to the haunted spot to perform a seance. Lorraine led Michael, the bartender, into a trance-like state, where they communicated with the murdered spirit, Gus. They tried to convince him to let go and move on from that place, to let go of his anger. When they ended the session, Michael said he felt less tense and like something heavy had lifted from the room. He didn't understand what had happened and didn't want to believe that he'd really been seeing and speaking to a ghost through a psychic connection. In the end, the hotel staff reported no more paranormal activity. Ed wondered briefly in his writings in Ghost Tracks if it had all been for show, a ruse to bring some publicity to the hotel for its grand reopening under new owners. But the Warrens dedicated little resources to disproving paranormal experiences, and so the story ended there. Various sources suggest that the Warrens
1: investigated anywhere between 3,000 and 10,000 paranormal cases in their lifetime, everything from spirit hauntings and demon possessions to Bigfoot and werewolf sightings. They offered classes to aspiring paranormal investigators, hosted their own weekly cable TV show, and led groups on tours of places like the Scottish Highland trips that we just described. They were confessed devout Catholics, attending and participating in church life in the community and working with the local hierarchy when it was open to their assistance to help those who believed they were afflicted by demonic or spirit harassment. According to Gerald Brittle, author of the first book about the Warrens, the 1980 sort of tell-all the demonologist Ed and Lorraine worked with officially approved exorcists from the church, as well as a network of underground exorcists who were willing to perform exorcisms without
0: the explicit consent of the local bishop. Because that's how, in the Catholic Church, official exorcisms work. And maybe you're expecting a little like record scratch moment here and you're thinking, wait. What? What are you talking about? Exorcisms are just movie magic and, like, you know, hearsay. This, it's not real, right? Well, whether you believe in the demonic or not, my friends, it remains true that there is
1: an official procedure in the Catholic Church for assessing and treating demonic possessions. hmm And we're not just <laughs> talking about, like, 15th century Italian priests, though we will talk about some of those in a minute. We're talking about any given moment right now, today, the Catholic hierarchy could approve an exorcism of someone who is determined to be legitimately possessed by a demonic entity. There's a standard set of steps that one must go through in order to receive the exorcism ministries, like those outlined on the Orange Diocesan website. First, you must make an appointment with your local priest, who listens to the person's history, provides pastoral counseling, prayer, and, uh, depending on the nature of the case, fills out the required intake form. Then... (laughs) <laughs> Serious stuff, Sarah. Serious stuff. Then the person, if they quote, still considers them him or herself under spiritual oppression or attack, quote and quote, is required to undergo close psychological and medical evaluation. All efforts to treat the affliction medically and through communal prayer, confession, and mass are taken before resorting to exorcism. If the trained medical professionals determine that the cause of the affliction is neither psychological nor medical, the priest
0: can recommend
1: whether a major or minor exorcism is needed.
0: According to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, quote, There are instances when a person needs to be protected against the power of the devil or to be withdrawn from his spiritual dominion. At such times, the church asks publicly and authoritatively in the name of Jesus Christ for this protection or liberation through the use of exorcism. Exorcisms are divided into two kinds. Simple or minor forms of exorcism are for those preparing for baptism, the rite of Christian initiation of adults, and the rite of baptism for children. The second kind is the solemn or major exorcism, which is a rite that can only be performed by a bishop or by a priest with the special and express permission of the local ordinary. This form is directed at the expulsion of demons or the liberation of a person from demonic possession." End quote.
1: Ed and Lorraine assert in all of their interviews that when people went to them for help, they followed the same strict rules as the official Catholic Church channels for exorcism, though they occasionally sought out priests to perform exorcisms without direct permission from the local ordinary. In 2002, Lorraine Warren said that of the 3,000 cases they'd investigated at that point, almost 600 benefited from exorcism. The Catholic Church does not divulge precise numbers of its exorcisms each year. Because exorcisms are guaranteed to be confidential by the church, we rarely hear or think about them unless something goes terribly wrong, or when there's a pop culture reference that piques the public interest, like the 1973 exorcist film or the 2005 exorcism of Emily Rose, which was supposed to be based on the experiences of a German woman named Annalise Michel, or Michael, who underwent 67 Catholic exorcism rites in the year before she died, um, and she died in 1976 of malnutrition.
0: Mm -hmm. But it is certainly evident that exorcism remains a growing concern of the church to this day. Father Vincent Lampert, the official exorcist of Indianapolis, the official exorcist of Indianapolis, told one reporter that he'd received 1,700 requests for exorcisms in 2018 alone. In 2015, the Vatican trained 250 new priests in exorcism through a specialized course with emphasis on the official text of the church, exorcisms, and relation supplications. When Ed Warren was alive, he claimed to be one of only seven demonologists in the United States and one of the only religious lay demonologists. There were around 15 certified Catholic exorcism priests. Today, according to Father Gary Thomas, there are over 100 Catholic priests certified in exorcism. In the United States, I should say. That doesn't
1: count all the ones around the world.
0: Mm. Mm.
1: Of course, however, the Catholic Church does not have the monopoly on demonology and exorcism. I, for example, as you know, am currently taking a course through the British Paranormal Academy to become a certified demonologist. It cost me 35 British pounds because they were having a sale. Um, as online courses go, it's not very rigorous. As internet content goes, it's also not very rigorous. But whatever, I'm I'm on my way to certification and I can't wait to display it proudly up there next to my PhD. <laughs>
0: To be clear, demonology shouldn't necessarily be conflated with expertise in exorcism. Recognizing the signs of demonic possession and knowing the names of the demons is not the same thing as having the training in piety that, according to Ed Warren, one needs to perform an exorcism. Some priests allege to take a demonic spirit into their own pure bodies before expelling it, while others drive the demons out of the afflicted through prayer, religious artifacts, and long, grueling battles of the wills.
1: Priests and religious leaders all over the world, from all kinds of denominations, Christian and otherwise, perform exorcisms every year. Recently, there's been a surge in both claims of spirit possession and demand for exorcism. According to religious studies professor Andrew Chestnut, exorcism today is so common, quote, that some exorcists combat demons using remotely using their cell phones, end quote. In 2010, a rabbi in Israel used the teleconferencing service Skype to perform an exorcism on a man in Brazil. In 2014, evangelical exorcist Bob Larson performed a Skype exorcism on a man in Norway that was televised on CNN. Chestnut argues that the surge in alleged demonic possession is at least in part because of the spread of Pentecostal churches in Latin America, Africa, and parts of the Philippines, because the Pentecostals centralized that struggle between demonic forces and the Holy Spirit in a in a like literal way rather than a metaphorical way. But along these same lines, in 2015, Mexican clergy performed an exorcism nationwide to cleanse the country of violence and abortion. Horrifyingly, in January 2020, seven people were found in a mass grave in Panama, a tragedy believed by local authorities to have been a group exorcism gone wrong.
0: Um, I just have to pause here to say um, that there is a, for those who are interested in this kind of stuff, there's a podcast called Ono Ross and Carrie um, that do exactly sort of like what Averill has done with <laughs> taking the demonology course, where they... They, they say they try things so you don't have to, like specifically this kind of occult stuff. And um, they did a multi, multi, multi part investigation of Bob Larson, Bob Larson Ministries. That is absolutely a must listen if you're interested in this, because Bob Larson is totally, totally bonkers. <laughs> it's, it's wacky. Anyway, undoubtedly, the recent expansion of the Catholic Church's experts in the arena of exorcism and demonic possession is in response to the encroachment of the non-Catholic exorcists like someone like Bob Larson. Of course, spirit possession and demonic entities were not invented by the Catholic Church, though not all cultures have a tradition of spirit possession. The majority do. In many cultures, and at different points in time, spirit possession was not considered extraordinary, but part of the everyday mundanities of life. Spirit and spirit possession caused illness or misfortune. Though rarer, shamans, oracles, and mediums across cultures are able to experience trance possessions, in which a person's soul might be subsumed by a god or spirit, which might allow them to provide prophecies healing, esoteric knowledge, or observable phenomena. To this day,
1: people all around the world report experiencing spirit entities. In the months after the March 11, 2011 tsunami in Japan, many people reported seeing the ghosts of those who died, while others experienced spirit possession. According to Joseph Laycock, quote, one Buddhist priest exercised 25 different spirits who had apparently taken up residence in a young girl. Each spirit had a distinct personality and described its life before agreeing to leave the girl, end quote. That same year in Cambodia, Malaysia, and other parts of South Asia, large groups of factory workers, as many as 250, collectively fainted while others entered into a, sp- a state of possession. In June 2013, a primary school in the Philippines was forced to suspend classes after 20 students inexplicably began screaming, fainting, and convulsing. In Portal, Georgia, Tim and Katie Mather... Run a ministry offering to perform exorcisms on American soldiers
0: suffering from PTSD. According to Laycock, the Mathers claim that trauma creates a window for demons to enter and that these demons are the actual cause of PTSD symptoms. While some skeptics probably assume that modern science and medicine has eradicated belief in the supernatural and the possibility of experiencing demonic or spirit possession, It's actually quite the opposite. The Catholic Church finds a greater demand for priests with the training to perform exorcism, and they are in a way in competition, or perhaps working alongside, Jewish, Buddhist, Pentecostal, and many other exorcists to deliver people from evil. These tensions or competitions
1: over unnatural and supernatural are also not particularly recent. I read an article about a couple of Inquisition cases between an Italian Carmelite order and the local Dominican order in Bologna, um, Italy. The Dominicans were among the original exorcists known for their piety and thus best suited to delivering the Roman ritual, as it's called. Um, In the 15th century, these Bolognian Carmelites were allegedly summoning demons so that they could question them about the devil and use his power for good. Like he could give them the power to heal with a touch or he like knew where treasures were and they wanted those. Um, The Dominicans, who were often also the inquisitorial squad, did not like this because they thought it was a bad idea for anyone to be summoning demons, period. And so there are like these inquisitorial court cases where they ended up executing actually a woman who was connected to the Carmelites instead of the Carmelites themselves. And then, yeah, it was all weird stuff. But so it's an ongoing thing.
0: (laughs) It's an ongoing thing. (laughs) Historians like skeptics will undoubtedly analyze these incidents and see collective trauma or workers resisting the unjust burdens of capitalism or, in the case of the Mathers, grifters profiting off of the mental illness of desperate people. And while those interpretations might provide a deeper analysis of the social, economic, and political histories of these movements, we cannot ignore the religious context and its significance in these moments, too. Belief is shaped by all those other things, and all those other things are shaped by belief. Ironically, in the
1: first millennial and you know, change of the Roman Catholic Church, demon summoning was pretty limited to the clergy themselves. All the texts and instruction manuals for summoning demons were written in Latin and kept in monasteries and libraries accessible only to scholars, and the scholars were all priests and a few nobles. Thus, in the case of the 15th century Bologna Carmelites, their demon summoning was facilitated by their priestly training. Despite this, by the 16th and 17th centuries in Italy, England, Germany, and France, the majority of people being executed for associating with demons, dabbling in witchcraft, were women. Even though the friar slash inquisitor of Bologna, who attempted to curb the Carmelites' demonic entreaties, um, his name was Cagnazzo, he did sentence one man to death for witchcraft, most of his victims in that city related to that case were women. This unsurprisingly reflects some broader trends in the history of Roman Catholic dealings
0: with the demonic. By the Roman Catholic Church's standards, only men can perform exorcisms, because the only people trained in the administration of major exorcisms are priests, and the Church continues to limit that occupation to men only. Conversely, and there are no precise numbers because, again, much of this exorcism business is kept pretty secret, anthropologist Erica Bourguignon has argued that the majority of allegedly possessed individuals have been women, Scholars have interpreted this trend in several ways. Some feminist scholars argue that women tend to be peripheral or marginalized in patriarchal society, where demon and spirit possession occur most frequently. This makes women more susceptible to spirit possession, especially when spirit possession is considered problematic, when it's associated with witchcraft, for example, or when the expectation is that spirits need to be exercised from the host. In cultures where spirit possession is empowering or central to a religious experience, Bourguignon suggests that men figure more prominently as the hosts of spirits. In these instances, spirit possession is a symptom of a broader patriarchal oppression. Another camp of scholars, we'll call them the agency feminists, argue that women are more likely
1: to experience spirit possession because it is an opportunity to react, resist, or respond to that patriarchal oppression. When possessed, women and girls behave in ways that they wouldn't normally, swearing, acting out sexually, speaking as equals to men, lashing out at those who've harmed them. In situations where spirit possession coincides with, for example, a domestically or sexually abusive home situation, the negative energy, by Ed Warren's logic, would be attracted to that woman or girl. By the feminist scholar's logic, that girl or woman would invite that spirit in to free herself, or if she wasn't a believer, but an actor, just to push
0: back. The final camp of scholars, we'll call them the patriarchy, have argued for centuries that women are more susceptible to demonic possession because of Eve, menstruation, and the penetrativeness of the female body. Eve invited the fall of man when she ate the fruit of the garden, and so of course she's always just a little closer to evil. I mean, she's the originator of sin, that's why she has to bear the pain of childbirth, right? Right. In the Hebrew tradition, menstruation was cast as unclean, and women have to be ritually cleaned every month after their period ended. I
1: mean, yeah, I would, I wouldn't mind a red tent situation if I didn't have, like, if there was like a week every month when I didn't have to talk to any of the people that I hate, that'd be great.
0: Yeah, I would take that. I'm not, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, In this line of thinking, too, the female body is the receptacle of the penis, of the semen, of the fetus, et cetera, et cetera. So in this worldview, of course, a female body is more likely to receive the penetration of a demonic entity. And this always makes me think
1: of the Exorcist, right, in nineteen seventy three yeah, yeah. in the sexualization of Linda Blair, a child Definitely. through the spirit possession. Or in one of my all time favorite films that I watch every October, Stigmata, starring Patricia Arquette and Gabriel Byrne. I've seen some, it so
0: long. But yeah, you're so totally good. right. Yeah. It's
1: like the quintessential nineties white women kind of thing. Uh, and <laughs> if you haven't seen it, it's there's an evil thing or sort of an evil thing, a a holy thing, I guess, possesses our cat's body. And then it sort of invites the demonic into her and that tries to then seduce this priest burn. But in both these instances, right, both in the exorcist with Linda Blair and um, Patricia Arquette's character, the women in the story are just objects for possession. Even Arquette who is experiencing stigmata, the wounds of Christ is only experiencing those wounds because she touched a rosary that belonged to a super devout priest man who was so close to Christ that he started experiencing stigmata himself. So the struggle between the faithful and evil, between God and Satan, is actually
0: always focused on the men involved. Shocking. Hmm. According to Catherine Ride, this kind of gendered ideology is rooted in the foundations of the church. Quote, Pastoral writers focused on the status and reputation of the individuals involved, but above all, they focused on gender. They often presented contact with otherworldly beings as a female activity, singling out women more than they did for any other form of magic. This emphasis on women was partly due to the canon episcopy which most pastoral writers knew, but some churchmen also claimed women were the main culprits in their own time. Other worldly beings were suspect anyway, but they were probably more suspect because they were associated with a group of people whom some churchmen were unwilling to trust. These concerns about the authority and trustworthiness of women who claimed to have had contact with the supernatural were also part of a of wider anxieties about women's authority in spiritual matters. During the later Middle Ages, churchmen in various parts of Europe raised similar concerns about female mystics who claimed to have had contact with God and the saints. Some observers expressed fears that these women were in fact communicating with the devil. And in the early 15th century, this prompted several eminent theologians to write treatises on the discernment of the spirits, how to tell whether the spirit which inspired or even possessed a person was good or evil. And isn't this part of the debate over Joan of Arc, Mm -hmm. right? at least at least the 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 um, sort of overarching debate, right? Like, I know that there was, like, practical reasons why Joan of Arc was was executed, right? But there was also this kind of, like, bigger theoretical conversation about, well, can we allow this to continue because she says that she's talking to God, but, like, we really you know don't know that she's not actually possessed by a demon and like that served as sort of a justification for her execution right right
1: whereas the question would have been less fraught if she'd been a man making the same claims yeah right no instead i want to get back to ed and lorraine um because i think i think this is an important caveat right in some ways, you know, certainly not with malicious intent, it's possible also, I think, to see these dynamics played out in Ed and Lorraine's partnership. Though they always present as a team in interviews in the books that I've read, there are always these hints of that gendered ideology, which that both that which shapes Catholicism more broadly um, and that which deals specifically with the issue of demonic and spirit possession specifically. If we were to examine their origin stories, for example, we'd see that dichotomy. Lorraine comes to the work because she's already open to this spirit world. Her body, female, susceptible, maybe menstrually unclean under all that tartan, <laughs> is what connects her to the super and preternatural. She can go into a haunted house and sense the restless ghosts or demonic presence. She can speak to the dead. But if there's something evil about, she shouldn't stay too long,
0: lest she be invaded by those spirits. Mm-hmm. And though Ed asserted that he was her protector because he wasn't susceptible to spirit entities, it was also his natural manliness that ensured he was suited to the job of demonologist. He was self-trained and actually wrote in Ghost Tracks, quote, looking back, I feel like I was born with certain with a certain awareness and placed in a position to gather more knowledge in that area. When I didn't have the knowledge I needed, it always seemed to come to me, maybe in the form of insight, another person or a book, but it would always come to me when I needed it. I did not wake up one day and say, I want to be a demonologist. Yet I became a respected expert in this field without degrees in theology or psychology or courses in parapsychology. And after 25 to 30 years of psychic research, many different clergy and leaders in all kinds of religions discovered I somehow understood and knew more about the preternatural than even their learned scholars. Hmm. He held himself above those who thought they could learn how to be men, how to be strong in the face of evil. He asserted that he didn't need formal training, though he in turn then trained others in a fairly fairly, formal lecture style setting. Both the demonologist
1: and ghost tracks focus on Ed's voice. Even as he gestured to his wife as his better half, the truly talented one it was always ed who gave the reports on cases whose voice narrated and commented on the case studies in ghost tracks the fact that the 1980 book was called the demonologist aka ed you can guess who the central character is right at one point in the demonologist ed is working late into the night while lorraine sits up in bed reading she's actually reading like a biography of a of a catholic saint Um, and she's waiting for him she can't sleep while he works Even in Ghost Tracks, while Ed's office is described as a space packed with books on the occult and notebooks full of his expert writings, Lorraine's office is packed with travel schedules and book contracts." She's the paranormal investigation equivalent of the thanks for typing. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. We get to see, in Ed's words, the moments when Lorraine gets to be front and center. So, for example, in the Scottish Highlands story, um, she led the prayers to protect the group as they commune with the spirits. But always with Ed there, positioned as the bulwark against the paranormal storm. He says, quote, as the demonologist, I was there as the policeman watching for demonic intrusion. End quote. When it was just a little old ghosty,
0: Lorraine could handle things mostly on her own. Ironically, it was always Lorraine's natural gifts that were actually what connected their work to the spirit realm. While Ed was proud of his lack of formal, university-ordained education in demonology, it's also like, that doesn't exist, so like... That's why you don't have a bachelor's degree in demonology, right? You can like get one in religious studies. You can thing. be really proud of your lack of training, but like it's also because there isn't training for that. Anyway. Unless you're a priest, but yeah. I sure. Yeah. Uh he, anyway, he he bragged that Lorraine was the real clairvoyant deal because she'd visited Dr. Thelma Moss, a psychologist at the UCLA School of Medicine, who had evidently, tested and verified Lorraine's skills as a light trance medium. Moss had developed a camera technique in the 1970s that was supposed to capture the aura of energy around a person, the same aura that Lorraine said that she could see. She was an actress turned psychologist and parapsychologist and author of the 1974 book, The Probability of the Impossible, Scientific Discoveries and Explorations in the Psychic World. Yes. So she she alleged that she had scientifically somehow proven Lorraine's abilities? Mhm. Has that ever been debunked? <laughs> um
1: I don't know. I didn't look into that Probably. I would just be
0: interested because I know that there are again this uh, this is a, a world that I spend a lot of time th- thinking about just for fun because one of my favorite podcasts as I mentioned before is this this um, podcast called Oh No Ross and Carrie where they do this sort of thing and they find really often that people will say like this was you know tested in a lab and proven to be true or I was certified by this yeah. institute that says that I really do have psychic abilities and they're like a lot of them are like diploma mills or like billy bob's university of spiritual investigation you know it's like not totally real um so i'd just be interested to know what the story is behind uh thelma moss
1: well she did seem to be actually employed by ucla for a while
0: yeah so so and then it'd be interesting to see
1: yeah she like utilized this sort of famous camera technique that like captures the energy which i assume is just like the heat signature around things
0: hmm. mm-hmm.
1: and it's colorful i don't know you can google it thelma moss photography I'm googling right now yeah
0: as we speak
1: <laughs> it's uh weird stuff um but lorraine and ed's partnership was rooted in these gender roles which echo the broader trends in the catholic system of demonology and exorcism ed was the point on all investigations until his death After his death, Lorraine could visit a haunted site and give her professional opinion about whether they were human or demonic spirit presences. She could go sit on a bed and go into a trance to commune with the unseen world, but she continued to abide by the gender roles of demonology and paranormal investigation. She was expected to rely on the underground network of male priests willing to do exorcisms or provide demonological readings of situations. And so she did. Surely Lorraine Warren knew the prayers and procedures of exorcisms and certain supplications by heart, but she
0: was not a demonologist. She was just the clairvoyant. Historically, there were occasional women religious and female Catholic laity who were permitted to exercise. (laughs) That's exorcise, not exercise. According to one source, St. Catherine of Siena, a lay member of the Dominican order in the 14th century, was known to lay hands on the possessed and free them of Satan's influence. Similarly, according to Monsignor Stephen Rossetti, St. Hildegard of Bingen, doctor of the church, was asked by the abbot of Brauweiler to exorcise a noblewoman from Cologne who had been possessed for seven years. The priests had been unsuccessful, and the demons claimed that only the saint could personally cast them out, which she did. These exceptions, though, seem to prove the rule. It takes digging all the way to the Middle Ages to find women exorcists. And even then, it was like, you know, rare occasions, right? Mm -hmm. And so Lorraine Warren's deference to the spiritual authority of the men in her life is, is consistent with those broader trends.
1: Presenting Lorraine's natural gifts as susceptibility in contrast to Ed's manly toughness as defense against the demonic is also interesting, right? Often, Ed would advise Lorraine to leave certain places, or she'd say herself she had to leave a place because she was more susceptible to the forces at work there. He was invulnerable to those presences because he wasn't gifted with those natural powers of clairvoyance. Lorraine's mediumship, which, as we've learned in our research into the spiritualist movement in the U.S., is heavily dominated by female-bodied women, marks her as a, as in danger of penetration by a spirit. And this is what Catherine Ryder and the other scholars who, we've, who've examined demonology, exorcism, possession, and Catholicism through a gendered lens of analysis, this is essentially what they're all talking about. Women are cast as more vulnerable to spirit possession because they were made— by God to receive. In this dichotomous and heterosexist view of the world, women are penetrated by penises, so they are more likely to be penetrated by demonic possession. And there's some good work here, too, on on spirit possession among marginalized and persecuted same-sex-desiring men, with parents having their gay sons exorcised because that unnatural desire can only be chalked up to demonic possession, but, you know, didn't have time to get into that. Yeah, today.
0: yeah. That's like a, a whole another can of worms. But, of course, that definition of the female body is socially constructed. All humans have a multitude of orifices that can and are penetrated on a daily basis. We all have mouths, and we have to take food and water into them in order to survive. Everyone has an anus, and that anus can expel excrement, but it has long also been a place to put stuff. Um. Whether it be phallic or bead-shaped or whatever. And, like, you can tell that this is an, an A-roll episode, right? Because we're going into great detail about how vaginas might get penetrated by phallic objects and phalluses. <laughs> But they also expel uh, live, partially formed human beings, right? So this designation of women as being somehow more susceptible to demonic possession um, is built not on any reality of their bodies being made for penetration, right? But instead, because that is how people mostly Old men wrote the Old and New Testaments and designated new women's bodies as unclean because of menstruation and blamed Eve for their men's erections and and created a myriad ways to subjugate the feminine in order to launch patriarchy into dominance. So it's it, it it's not that there actually is something inherent to the female body that is more penetratable. Is the point there, right? Like there's, it it is the way that women. Are understood by humans, particularly human men, right? Rather mm-hmm. than some reality of their body, exactly.
1: So, as we're winding down here, if you kept listening because you're hoping we'd go over how to summon demons, I'm sorry, friends. That'll have to be a different episode because I you're haven't gonna have completed.
0: to take. The, they're gonna have to take the class.
1: Yeah, you're gonna take the class for yourself because I haven't completed it, so I don't feel like an expert ready to to you know I- instruct you on demon summoning um and i'm pretty sure was there do you do you know i'm talking about there was like a podcast about in which they tried to summon demons or they talked about how you summon demons and they did it by like playing kiss albums backwards on the podcast
0: oh i don't know i don't know did i make that up i
1: might have made that up (laughs) you may have maybe it'll be my next podcast project i know that
0: that was a that was a whole thing about you know playing um What was the other one? Led Zeppelin records backwards and and there being secret demonic messages in them. Mm -hmm. And yeah, (laughs) that's a whole another another can of worms.
1: Yes. Someday in
0: the future. Ed passed away in 2006. Lorraine survived him by 13 years, passing more recently in April 2019. Their museum and business were taken over by their daughter and son-in-law. I want to go to their museum. It's
1: closed. I looked. It's permanently closed. I know. I'm super bummed. I think because of COVID. That
0: sucks. Their daughter, Judy, is said to have some clairvoyant gifts that she chooses not to use because she grew up surrounded by the occult and I, I guess wants nothing to do with it. According to the New England Society for Psychic Research website, Judy's husband, Tony Spera, continues to employ a team of investigators, mediums, and spiritual advisors in an effort to carry on the Warrens' work. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Nine of his team members are men, three are women. None of the lead investigators are women. And of the three women listed, two serve as clairvoyants or mediums like Lorraine. Necessary to the investigative work, again, but peripheral to the true experts so i watch a lot of movies
1: that's just a period kind of thing sentence uh, i particularly love scary movies from october 1st to october 31st i can't wait to start this friday um before, you know after we record this i get to i try to watch a ghouly creepy or halloweeny movie or at least an episode of a scary tv show like american horror story every day yep the cheesy, the genuinely terrifying, the based on true events, the found footage, the teen slasher, every single one of them. Uh not not torture porn. I I, I that's my line and that's where I draw it. Yeah, I'm not into it. That's uh, so gross. Um but I love films with demons and hauntings. Mhm. F- love them. If it's a scary movie that has had a nationwide theatrical release, I have probably seen it maybe twice. That includes every one of the films in the Conjuring franchise. For those of you who are unaware of the Conjuring franchise, um, it includes the three Conjuring films, which are focused on Ed and Lorraine as the main characters, but also Annabelle, Annabelle Creation and Annabelle Comes Home, The Nun, which I think is about, supposed to be about like Lorraine or someone who's Lorraine adjacent as a young woman who, tem- you know, at, at some point, and this is, I think this is all fictional, decides that she wants to become a nun, but then um, is driven away because... The convent is cursed and haunted. Um, And then The Curse of La Llorona, which doesn't involve either of the Warrens, but all of those are films that are dramatized, that dramatize the case files of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Um, According to her obituary, Lorraine Warren worked closely with The Conjuring director, uh, James Wan, in the film, on the film to make it as real as possible. So when I saw The Conjuring in theaters in 2013, I was, of course, intrigued by the title card and credit roll that assured the audience that the following was based on true events. Um, And though I'd seen and owned a DVD of the 2005 Amityville Horror because it starred Ryan Reynolds, I yes, had no, Yes. I forgot about that. Mm, so good. When he goes dark, it's good. I had uh, not heard of Ed and Lorraine Warren before, um, or, if, or if they'd been featured even briefly in that 2005 remake, I didn't give them a second thought. But a quick Google search of the couple these days will turn up lots of info, websites and even some newspaper articles. Um, not much in the way of academic studies of the Warrens. The 12-plus books are largely built on collaborative efforts with the authors, like the 1980 book by Gerard Brittle or the 2000, possibly two or four book by Cheryl A. Wicks. Um, But I don't think that that means that there won't be.
0: By their own account, the Warrens gained their 15 minutes of fame because in that particular moment in American history, someone needed them. Religious scholar David Frankfurter argues that the leaders of these kinds of demonological based movements create the need for their services by first convincing the audience that those demons are there and then slipping in to show the same audience how to protect themselves. While that is certainly possible, and he was looking specifically at patterns of evil panics like the 16th, 17th century witch hunts or the satanic panic of the 1980s and 90s, other scholars have revealed the waves of obsession and investigation into the demonic. Historian Laura Smaller shows how his exorcism activities were essential to the elevation of Dominican friar Vincent Ferrer in his benediction. Historian Tamara Herzig reveals the demon summoning that 15th century clergy were dabbling in regularly in Bologna and undoubtedly elsewhere. Historian Sarah Bartels demonstrates the widespread popularity and interest in the occult in the 19th century. While spiritualism was certainly at the fore of that, quote, Victorian society provided a range of spiritual and magical outlets, including mesmerism, Rosicrucianism, Theosophy, and Ritual Magic. Ooh, we're going to talk about Theosophy in my episode. Ooh. As we've discussed, the American Society for Psychical Research was founded in the 1880s, an organization dedicated to parapsychology, also by well-to-do Victorian intellectual men who didn't quite fit into the spiritualist movement, but were intrigued by the possibilities nonetheless. Historian Joanna Timms wrote about the popularity of ghost hunting and psychical research in interwar England, popular among the eccentric aristocrats and opportunistic journalists like Harry Price. And today, there's still this obsession and interest in the paranormal,
1: evidenced not just by the hundreds, maybe thousands of people who sought out the Warrens as teachers and mentors and helpers, but as the popularity of TV shows like Ghost Hunters evidences, we keep coming back to the same place, no matter what new device and mind-bending theories of the universe and multiverse that we come up with, and I think the Warrens understood that as well as anyone.
0: <sighs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> Do you have thoughts? Um I it, I just this gave me lots of memories of being you know, a middle schooler and watching Amityville Horror and all this, and and I do remember being told that like Ouija boards were dangerous, and and specifically for this reason that Ouija boards would invite, they gave a, an um, opportunity, they provided an opportunity for Satan to grab you or not necessarily in a in a possession sort of way but in like a nefarious like he's gonna get into your into your life sort of way so it is interesting just how um pervasive this stuff is like you don't actually have to be like radically fanatically religious to have some aspect of this in your actual worldview right it's true
1: and I mean, there's so much more that, you know, I, I didn't include because there was so much. Like, there's this, there's a, I don't know, uh, I don't want to call it an inconsistency, but a weird thing where sometimes Ed and Lor- Lorraine would say, you know, using things unknowingly like the Ouija board or doing, playing um, Bloody Mary in the bathroom, right? Mm-hmm. But that's inviting a spirit in, and you could be possessed that way. But usually it only happens – possession only happens when something bad happens or you have, like, negative energy, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then that's what invites the, the bad spirits And So it's mm-hmm. – there's a lot of rules and rule bending and it's – I'm sure – I mean, they obviously had it down to a science in a mm-hmm. sense of the word um, as they were teaching people. So it, it's it's an interesting – case study and i'm i'm curious to see how like historians of the 1970s and 80s will yeah. or if they will incorporate the fame and popularity of the warrens into studies like what was happening at yeah. that point and the satanic penance being the obvious um, one of the obvious connections but there's so much right. going on here
0: Yeah, and that's that's such a good point because there has been such a resurgence in the past few years of interest in the satanic panic. Um, There's been so many podcasts and and documentaries and things like that about the satanic panic and the the. the way that it connected to, like, ideas of stranger danger and, you know, um, child abduction and the McMartin preschool case and child abuse and, like, all of that stuff. But interestingly enough, I have not heard any of those, you know, recent explorations of that kind of go back to the Warrens or to this interest in demonology. Like, I've definitely heard about you know, all sorts of different ways that that kids could get sort of sucked into Satan worship, Mm -hmm. whether it was through music, like we were talking about, like, reverse, you know, playing albums backwards or whatever, or like toys that apparently like when you press the buttons, they would like make a weird noise. And that noise (laughs) was like actually Satan talking or whatever it was. Right.
1: But I've not
0: I've not seen the connection to Sort of the, the I don't, I'm, I'm in quotes here, scientific research of yeah. demonology. Yeah. And it seems to me like this is very, I mean, it's very circular, as you kind of mentioned in the episode. Like, there's this interest in it, like a small interest in it, like, the, you know, this one case, right, the Amityville case. And then that becomes a movie, which creates a huge upsurge in interest in it, which makes it seem like there's more demand for it because more because it's really happening does that make Mm -hmm. sense yeah when it's really just kind of a a self-perpetuating sort of interest cycle yeah
1: right yeah you're showing them the demons and convincing them that they're there and then filling that need
0: right yeah exactly
1: but at the same time right so when the exorcist is coming out and the amityville horror is going on apparently they're you know they're like legitimate tenure lines in psychology departments for parapsychology, right? Like the study of psychic, right? Like I'm thinking of like Dan Aykroyd's parents who were renowned parapsychologists. That's so interesting. <laughs> I know. And so yeah. so there's, there's all of the, I mean, there's a genuine, I think, human drive to understand the universe and that means Mm -hmm. understanding everything that we can't explain Mm -hmm. until we can explain it Mm -hmm. and that has developed these you know whether it's alchemy in the early modern period or it's parapsychology in our 20th 21st century um we we have both the sort of superstitious sure Elements of, of fear of the demonic or or psychic abilities or witchcraft or whatever, but then there's always also this intellectualism that is obsessed with it too, and Mm -hmm. is is both connected to and somewhat separate from. I think that, and I think I I think Ed and Lorraine. Are in a way a bridge between, right? Mm-hmm. Even though Ed is like, oh, I'm not a uh, university trained, blah blah, but he still wants to be perceived as yeah. as, as a real expert, expert. yeah, yeah. As a real expert, yeah, yeah, exactly. So they're, yeah, they're like, forming. Lorraine goes and gets verified by by a, a lab in a in UCLA, right? So like that mm-hmm. sort of interesting bridge between these.
0: Yeah, there's worlds. always a desire for that um, legitimacy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, even while kind of rejecting, like, well, th- you know, th- what do they know? Like, you can't, these are things that you can't, you know, uh, prove using science. But at the same time, they want to be proven by science because it lends a legitimacy. Yeah, which is interesting. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, thank you yeah. for listening, Um go watch some some scary halloween movies i know i will be i'm very excited um be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter, dig underscore history. If you are looking, and you know you are, to bedazzle yourself in some wonderful dig swag, visit our Tee Public store. Uh, teachers, remember we've got a whole section of our website dedicated to resources just for educators, ideas uh, on how to use podcasts in the classroom, uh, specific assignment examples linked to particular episodes or groups of episodes, Definitely uh, lots of ideas there to help you incorporate your favorite history podcast into your classroom. Um, you can find the link to our swag store, the, that resources page, as well as transcripts and bibliographies and images for all of our episodes at digpodcast.org. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Don't summon any demons.
1: Averill. Wink. Oh, just kidding. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Wink. Okay, bye this podcast was produced by the historians of dig elizabeth garner maserick sarah hanley cousins marissa rhodes and me Avery. L- thanks for listening because the amity because the amity oh my god amity- <laughs> amityville there go. because the amity oh my
0: god <laughs> but it is certainly evident that exorcism remains a growing concern of the church this day Father Vincent Lepere. Does that sound right? Lampere Lampert Lampert. He's from okay. Indianapolis. Okay. Anthropologist Erica Bourguignon. Bourguignon. Anthropologist. Yeah. What? Bourguignon. That's what I would say. It's like yeah. the beef beef Bourguignon, right?
1: Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. And the defining years. Oh, did I do something? You just highlighted it this morning. Yeah.
0: Oh, it was. I was trying to clean my mouse. It had, it had cinnamon bun frosting on. Oh, it. okay, <laughs> sorry. <good. laughs> um, in the neighborhood he grew up in, Maria in Germany and Colony Susan Colony. <laughs> 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 I said Germany and Colony. How was your nap? Uh, it failed
1: because I watched Grown Ups and then I watched two episodes of Never Have I Ever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, it still
0: sounds nice and relaxing. And I also did my class prep. Yeah, I haven't done any class prep yet. So um, I teach at one fifty. Today's a wing it day. Uh, sure
1: Woo! is. Um, for those of you who are on. Under- oh! F- <laughs> got too expressive with
0: my hands it was a demon i'm really excited for this episode (laughs) (laughs) this is the story of the one as head of maintenance at a concert hall he knows the show must always go on that's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working the hvac is humming and his facility shines